Progress is an interesting word because I think a lot of the talk around diversity inclusion, or it's all about kind of developing a business case. And although that's really good, there's also a moral imperative and an ethical imperative with some of this. Hello, and welcome to The Talent Blueprint, your guide to building a talent-first company. Today's episode features an interview with Dr. Luke Fletcher, Associate Professor in Human Resource Management at Bath School of Management. The Talent Blueprint is brought to you by Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform makes it possible for companies to deliver more human talent experiences and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce using industry-leading AI. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's installment of the Talent Blueprint. I am your host, Sultan Seidov. And today we have a very exciting and more academic discussion and guest. I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Luke Fletcher, who's the Associate Professor in Human Resource Management at the University of Bath School of Management. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited for today's session. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. So Luke, let's uh, let's get into it, into our first segment, the blueprint. It's a blueprint. This doodle is called a blueprint. A blueprint. Just screw up a little blueprint. And it's right here in this here blueprint. Tell me about your your position at Bath School of Management. What is the what is the scope of your academic research? Yeah, so in terms of what I do, I'm an associate professor or senior lecturer in the University of Bath School of Management. So I teach on the undergraduate and postgraduate programs. Um, in management and focusing more on kind of human resource management and applied psychology. So my background is more in kind of applied psychology end of things. And I've kind of moved a bit into kind of HR and people management as well. So I teach a variety of different areas around that, that connects into my kind of research areas. So quite a dominant part of my role is actively researching and and collecting data and analyzing data and writing up kind of studies and papers and evidence around um, different areas of HR practice and apply psychology at work. So I do things around, so there's kind of three main topic areas I think I, I kind of cover. One is more around kind of perceptions of, so employee perceptions of things like training and development, talent management, and broadly speaking, more other areas around HR and people management, and looking at how that might then influence um, that attitudes and behaviors at work. So that's kind of one main area. The other area is kind of looking more at positive psychology states at work, so feeling this sense of engagement at work, feeling a sense of meaning and purpose at work, and a sense of authenticity uh, in the way that you're kind of behaving at work, and to what extent that's going to have benefits or drawbacks to you at work. And the the final area is more around diversity inclusion. So I, I do quite a lot now around LGBT plus inclusion at work and kind of connected areas around that. So things around allyship and kind of supportive practices for minority groups in the workplace. So that's another area that I'm particularly interested in. So I kind of try to connect some of the dots around that and connect it with conversations around talent and, and resourcing and so on as well. And all of those topics, of course, incredibly pertinent in today's landscape that so many businesses find themselves in and having to rethink how to approach diversity and inclusion and rethink how to approach employee engagement. But before we dig into all of that, I wanted to pick up on the second area you mentioned around positive psychological states and feeling a sense of engagement, uh, meaning and purpose. For you in your own position, in your own academic role, what has given you in the last year or two, 
of these different projects that you've been involved in, these different research papers, the highest sense of engagement and the highest meaning and purpose to you? Yeah, so that's a, a, a good question. It's always good to reflect on what actually gives you that sense of meaning. And that kind of relates to some of the work I've been doing around positive psychology at work and helping people find the time that they can reflect on those things is, is important as well. But I think in terms of, I mean, I started at University of Bath during the second lockdown in the UK. So it was a bit of a strange time not being able to kind of connect to my colleagues in the same way, kind of getting full into kind of online teaching and kind of getting to know students in a, in a different dynamic as well. And I think kind of throughout that period and, and into now, it's kept me going in terms of the variety of projects I'm doing. I really like having a different mix of different areas that all kind of interconnect but do different things. So I've been working quite a lot on things around allyship and around trans people at work, but also looking at broader kind of LGBT inclusion, which has been really fascinating and opened me up into lots of different new areas of research and literature and ideas in that space as well. So kind of focusing on more my kind of, I would say, mainstream stuff around meaningful work and engagement. I've been doing a, um, I've been involved in a kind of editorial looking at meaningful work and business ethics. So kind of reading different people's papers on that and looking at the future of work around that. So we've got some really interesting papers coming through around artificial intelligence, for example, and meaningful work and the kind of future around that ethical dilemmas that might be placed around that with the, with future dynamics around that. So that, that's been quite interesting work as well. So I think what's kept me going is just being kind of engaged with different varied topics and ideas and research agendas and projects. I can see why. That's a lot of uh, interesting topics that you mentioned and would love to uh, dig into some, some of the AI and, and ethics pieces. Of the things on the horizon right now, what are some of the most uh, interesting next up areas that you're considering digging into? In terms of next areas, I'm focusing on a project kind of going further with my initial work on allyship. So I'm looking at doing a project around allyship versus micro-incivility. So what happens to people, particularly from minority groups, so I'll be focusing more on LGBT people in this project, but what kinds of everyday experiences signal to them that they're then a supportive environment that they feel that they've got colleagues that really recognize and support them versus kind of the subtle things at play and that might not be from colleagues it might be also be from kind of clients or customers and, and that kind of thing as well and looking at more of the dynamics around that and looking at it from a psychological point of view um so that's the next project um the other thing i'm really interested in is with the kind of future of ways i mean linkedin and, and so on has been around for kind of what a decade or more now but it's interesting to see how the platforms be changed particularly around social movements and particular activists around diversity and inclusion for example or mental health we saw a rise in that during the pandemic so really understanding you know how people are really engaging with those people individuals and kind of almost creating the sense of move these movements around those topic areas and individuals on those kind of social platforms and whether that's actually instigating any change within organizations. Quite often organizations are looking at best practice, you know, with competitors or industry leaders. So it'd be interesting to see, are they taking any inspiration from 
other things going on in the social in social media and and kind of social influences. Well, your mention of best practices around these social movements and uh, the first project you mentioned on focusing on allyship and LGBT. I think there's also a really interesting interaction point around how should businesses think about best practices and benchmarking when it comes to diversity and when it comes to looking at impact in those areas. And this takes us nicely into uh, into our next segment, the journey. A real journey. Become the journey. How have you seen companies thinking about success and progress when it comes to DNI? When you think about the ways that people are able to measure progress or, or what they're not necessarily looking at or they should be looking at, what have you seen people getting right or wrong and what perspectives could you share on how to help businesses approach progress when it comes to DEI in a more effective way? Yeah, thank you. I think um, progress is an interesting word because I think a lot of the talk around diversity inclusion, like a lot of other areas like talent or um, or training and development, for example, it's all about kind of developing a business case and providing organizational leaders and senior management teams with evidence to say, this is why we need to be doing it. It will have benefits to productivity and staff retention and all that kind of stuff. But I think Although that's really good, there's also a moral imperative and an ethical imperative with some of this. So I think it's about understanding your stance as an organization about that and being clear through your values and behaviors. Quite a lot of organizations will have a value framework and so on and kind of implement that across things like appraisal and recruitment and so on. So it might be useful to kind of have a think about how do you translate some of those kind of hard metrics that you want to kind of prove a business case around DNI to actually the kind of more softer elements around how do you encourage people to, for example, to feel psychologically safe at work, feel that they can be authentically themselves at work. One of the issues I think is also the data around it can be problematic. So how do you know with certain kind of diverse categories that you've got people representing different groups and so on? Do you want more or less? How do you get that mix right? Quite often people, organizations don't have great data around that. So that can be a kind of difficult challenge for organizations. It's interesting you're unpacking that data challenge, especially in this post-pandemic world. Part of it starts with the question of how do we even define what diversity is? I think increasingly businesses are starting to look at cognitive diversity and other types of preference as part of this equation of understanding the balance that we have within the business and how we approach these initiatives. We at Beamery have actually been partnering with a UK headquartered organization called Fair HQ that have been pioneering surveys, uh, which we've been using for ourselves to get into some of that extra level of detail of understanding how are we doing on these different topics of psychological safety and so forth. But I think one of the challenges that many businesses have, at least in today's world, is thinking about benchmarks, both for those softer areas and those harder areas, as you say, of what should we be targeting and where do we start? Is there anything you've, you've seen in your research around, I guess, a, a maturity curve of what are some of the right foundations to perhaps begin with in looking at those measurements and those sort of benchmarks versus obviously where things can go as you start to get more mature in these practices? Yeah, I think there's, in the academic sense, we kind of differentiate between different types of diversity. So some people will say that it's fine to to some degree to look at surface, what's called surface diversity. So kind of basic demographic characteristics. Others say, well, actually, we need to go further and look at what's called deep diversity, which is more around 
personality, cognitive differences and that kind of thing. And then other people will say, well, actually, we need to look at it from an intersectional perspective and look at intersecting or multiple dimensions that might intersect to a compound disadvantage for people, which has emerged from kind of the feminist movements and the black feminist movement. There's also a question around what's called functional diversity. So having different people from different back, um, more like qualifications and disciplinary areas that might come together within the business who might have different statuses within the organization, that kind of thing. So there's when you unpack diversity, it can mean quite a lot of different things to different people. My particular focus and energy goes to really looking at diversity from the point of view of inequality, rather than just looking at it from a kind of cognitive point of view or a personality point of view, because cognitive differences or personality differences, to me, that might not actually equate to structural inequality. Whereas if you look at some of the more specific protected characteristics, particularly, for example, in the UK legislation, but it goes beyond legislative stuff. But then you want to kind of look at really what's causing inequality and how can you solve some of those biases, stereotypes, prejudice, discrimination. So that's why I would particularly focus on that in my research rather than perhaps functional diversity where you've got maybe someone from a marketing background and someone from an accounts background coming together within the organization because to me that's not as interesting from my academic point of view that resonates a lot with me when we started the company our mission statement which it is to this day was about creating equal access to work regardless of where you're born or what opportunities you have and i think there is a, a deep opportunity today to start impacting the way in which we're able to tackle inequality and how we have our HR and recruiting practices, for example, by being more capability-centric and looking at ways of opening up broader opportunities outside of traditional patterns of thinking about how you hire and how you create opportunities. This touches on the other side of what you mentioned around data and surveying. I'd, I'd love to dig in a little bit further into the employee engagement components of how you evaluate people's potential when we're thinking about these elements of inequality and creating opportunities where perhaps people have more access based on potential and growth. How should organizations think about employee engagement and staff surveys in that context of evaluating potential? Yeah, good question. I think potential to me, when I teach about performance versus potential to my class, the main thing I say is, well, it's easier to measure performance. Often you've got a set list of objectives, you're measuring against job descriptions, and you've got defined KPIs and performance metrics that you can think, look at. But managers often look at performance in a very fuzzy way, and they're often making potentially quite subjective assessments about that on the individual and what they know about them and how they behave at work and so on. So I think if you want to step back as an organization and really look at it from a systematic point of view is to kind of think about the values and behaviors that transcend an individual, that look at the organization as a whole. What do we really want from collectively from our people in terms of certain types of attitudes, behaviors. So it could be things like, oh, we want people to help each other out when people, you know, people have issues at work, that kind of thing. We want people to be empathetic. We want people to be results driven, but not too results driven to the fact that they kind of just miss everything, miss all the kind of wider detail and that kind of thing just to get something done. It could be things about teamwork, innovation, creativity. So just being really clear and having a framework around that not just in terms of the behaviors and skills that you want to look at, 
but also in terms of values and how do you translate values into behaviors that you can observe in people. So the ones what I've seen that have been quite successful have a very strong framework around that and have cascaded that down through various different parts of the employee life cycle. So for example, using that in hiring in the way that they're designed, for example, competency-based interviews to how they might then do promotions, decisions and and kind of developmental centers, that kind of thing, all the way to kind of rewards and recognition packages and looking at how managers might reward financially or or, or kind of through other incentives, kind of behavior that relates to those. That's the way I would see it, having a very clear framework, knowing how to translate that and knowing the indicators that give you that that sense. Your mention of the selection process and criteria, and obviously the subjectiveness of that, reminds me of um, some research of yours I was looking at around perceptions of those who are selected for projects or work versus those that weren't. I believe you had some research on talent pools within a bank where you were analyzing the perceptions on being selected for different types of profiles. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of your findings of how that selection process impacts different people? Yeah, so this was actually uh, one of my master's students a, a few years ago, Janki. So this is her project. This is her idea, actually, not not mine. So I can't create kind of give credit for that but she was really passionate about this she was working in the bank she saw that there was kind of differences in in what was going on there in terms of people that were internally selected for internal talent pools versus those that weren't and she was kind of interested in um, personality differences so you know some people might benefit a lot more than others from being part of that talent pool and she wanted to understand why that might be so we were looking more at kind of the psychological benefit in terms of feeling more self-confident in your abilities, feeling more committed and connected to the organization and kind of feeling that you're able to kind of perform well and, and kind of in a broader sense in terms of helping colleagues out and that kind of thing and being more proactive. So she found that there was a big difference between those that were selected onto the talent pool and those that weren't. But she also found that there was a particular influence of narcissism so she's particularly interested in more the the negative side of personality narcissists or those higher scoring on these kind of measures tend to be those that are probably less likely to be that interested in the in the kind of broader learning and kind of facilitation of talent pool developmental activities and then probably more likely to be more connected to status driven rewards and that kind of thing So she found that the psychological benefit was much less likely to be there for those that were higher in narcissism. So it kind of points to the fact that you might have this amazing talent pool and talent development kind of project or program within your organization, but there might be some people that really benefit and others don't. And you might need to then think about how you might reward and and motivate those that might not be getting that psychological benefit from that. It's super interesting research, particularly at a time when many companies are starting to look at experiments for programs with things like talent marketplaces, internal gigs. It's one of the things that we we power in, in our software offering. And I don't think that much attention has been given to taking different approaches based on people's personality profiles and thinking about what you've just said, for example, with narcissists, that going through development activities might not be as beneficial to them versus, I guess, other populations where there might be different approaches you take if you if you have a better sense of how this they would engage with this and how they might react to being deemed as being talented versus not. That's super interesting. Well, if we turn to uh, 
guess, a more more of a personal passion side beyond your academic research and look at anything that you are personally involved in or, or deeply passionate about. What other things are out there for you, Luke, that you've been focusing on? Yeah, so one of them is really about the kind of LGBT inclusion side of things. One of the reasons why I got into that kind of areas of research was because I was passionate about it. And, you know, part of my job, I feel, is to create a positive impact. And, you know, you can always kind of berate academics for sitting in ivory towers and just kind of contemplating existential crises. But, you know, I want to also have, I might be doing kind of work that might not translate into practical stuff, but I also want to make sure that most of what I'm doing has some kind of practical implication or is making a positive contribution to reducing inequality and so on. So I think that's kind of my one of my passion areas is to just make sure that in the work that I'm doing, that I keep that central to the way that I operate and the way that I try to guide my life. But it's not always, you know, you can't do everything. So it's kind of making sure that I'm trying to do enough, but not going to be saving the world with my research. But every little kind of difference helps. That's a, a high bar. Uh, Luke, for uh, for any research or any project saving the world, but I think this certainly makes uh, makes a dent and makes an impact on something super important. Well, if we zoom out and think about the future of the world, be it saved or not, I think that takes us nicely to uh, our next segment: the future of talent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the future. What do you think success should look like for an employer or an organization? We talked about benchmarks, but if we really zoom out and think forward, how should an organization be thinking about success when it comes to their talent? Yeah, I think um, benchmarking is one of those pitfalls I think organizations can fall into quite quickly. I think they can be really useful, but in some other previous work I did on employee engagement, I think, and also kind of my experiences of either working in organizations or connecting with them on, on their employee engagement surveys and so on, I think some organizations treat anything related to that and talent as kind of we need to be better than our competitors we need to be x amount percentage more but they kind of fail to realize well what does that even mean just because you've got 10 percent on a you know incremental point or something what does that really translate into what why is that important to you um and what does that really mean for your employees and if you're not hitting that target does that mean that qualitatively you're doing something completely wrong probably not it's just that you know, your organization looks a bit different than another organization and maybe they're doing slightly different things to you, but that doesn't mean that you're doing everything poorly. So I think it's just taking a step back from benchmarking and just seeing the value that it can bring in terms of just understanding where you sit and the landscape, but not getting too bogged down and utilizing that only as a kind of the way that you kind of structure your activities around employee engagement or talent development and so on. Well, if we lean, to, lean into those those activities that companies do need to focus on and, and prioritize getting right, what do you believe over the next coming years that HR and TA leaders really need to prioritize getting right? Yeah, I think some of it is around data as well. So as much as I'm saying be critical of benchmarking, a lot of data is useful and knowing how to use that and knowing what to look for in the data, particularly for larger organizations, they're hampered with the sheer amount of data that they have. So it's being strategic about what's important, why is it important, and understanding how to analyze that data. And that might be bringing in external experts in, maybe consultants, maybe academics, you know, and having 
not being scared to involve other people outside of the organization to help you solve some of those data challenges or analytical challenges. I think when organizations kind of feel quite protected, is not the right word, but slightly more kind of threatened about their data, then it's kind of, well, quite often the, the standard response to academic researchers who want to do any, organo- any research in organizations, particularly those going under, undergoing change, is like, oh, it's too busy. We don't really want you to survey our, our employees when we're doing a restructure or we're doing a change project because they're scared about the perceptions and the experiences. But surely that's the best time to collect data and to understand what's going on so you can solve challenges and issues um, before they get too big. So I think some sometimes it's kind of not letting that kind of sense of being scared about the data and what it might actually show you in a negative sense, perhaps. I've also had experiences where, you know, in academic research, we often use scales that aren't always positive all the time. There might be like negatively phrased items or targeting certain things like things like anxiety at work or stress. Some organizations have responded before to me to say, oh no, we don't want you to put any negative items in there and I have to say well why surely that will give you some insight as well yeah so I think that's one of those those elements is not being scared about the data allowing it to talk to you and to really understand what's going on one of the types of data that I think many people know is important but don't know how to utilize uh, is skills the currency of so many of the topics that you touched on earlier around thinking about the way to grow people's potential and how to think about performance and how to think about more inclusive hiring. But of course, for many companies, that question of how have we defined opportunities is not very skill-centric. And the question of how we thought about the data on our employees or our candidates is not very skill-centric. I think I've read you talking about the positive psychology movement in this regard in terms of kind of approaches to being more capability-centric. Tell me a little bit more around how organizations might think about job crafting and how organizations might think about the data they have on on skills. Yeah, so there's a big kind of movement in the kind of academic world at the moment around what's called job crafting. So this is the idea that every single individual, when they get recruited into an organization, you know, they're recruited to do a job that's in their job description and then kind of HR kind of let them get on with it, basically, and their managers kind of manage their outputs and tasks and whatever. In reality, most people don't just do the job that they're hired to do in the job description and the points in that job description. They'll be they'll be over time crafting what they do in their role over time to suit their own needs, their career interests, and also how they might have an impact in the wider organization by doing various other things. So again, it's kind of understanding the dynamics of that and how that works at the individual level. So how individual people in different jobs are doing that. It's probably much more easier for people in professional jobs that have more autonomy intrinsically in their work to be able to do that. But what about people that have very kind of strict or limited capacity for autonomy? How do they craft their jobs um, in ways that make that more fulfilling for them? So for example, in kind of emergency kind of care obviously they need to follow very strict procedures for life and death kind of reasons obviously but how do they then craft their jobs outside of those kind of strict processes and and, uh, procedures so those kind of things are really interesting from an HR and applied psychology perspective but you also have to think about what the organization and the managers are really requiring to what degree over time are people 
really going far, disconnecting from the original job description that they were hired to do in the first place. And does that even matter? It might be actually they're doing something really innovative, creative, contributing something new by doing that process. So going beyond and changing their job fundamentally. But then, you know, what happened to the job description that they were hired to do? Do you need to replace that part and redo their job description and negotiate that with them? Is it that you need to tailor like tailor them back a bit and negotiate that? So again, there's lots of interesting questions. How how do managers and organization and employment contracts kind of shift and change? And how does that neg- how is that negotiated? The piece you're touching on of how people might disconnect from their original job description is interesting from the perspective of reskilling and upskilling. Is part of that disconnection a function of somebody having the opportunity to actually develop skills and develop their career in a way that might be disconnected from the job description they had, but might be an opportunity for them to connect with where they're heading. And the autonomy you touch on is a really interesting question around intentionality. How can we make the discovery of career paths and our ability to explore certain skills and capabilities more intentional? This is something I think a lot of organizations are starting to think about, and there's certain options that you can engage in, such as looking at gigs as a way of giving people a chance to try certain things out or validate certain skills without necessarily having to have that opportunity within the job description they had or what they have within their scope. From an academic perspective, when you think about this broader landscape of reskilling, upskilling, and the fact that job descriptions themselves are perhaps falling apart as the necessary criteria of crafting your own journey in your career, what have you found as, as some of the emerging thoughts and trends on how people can approach this question of skills-based career pathing? Mm. Yeah, that's a good good question. So I think in the literature, there's kind of a, a kind of debate around how organizations view talent and talent management. So some are much more rigid and will be very much more about elitist competitive views on talent. So we want to externally recruit a small number of high, you know, the stars in the market, recruit them in and just pay them lots of money and reward them. That mentality i think is changing and shifting quite a lot and there's now much more movement around humanistic or inclusive talent management so being very much more individualized looking at everybody as being talented and it's just about the organization trying to tease out what that specific unique skill set of that individual is and to allow them to develop that career journey i think as you said like those gigs and that kind of thing would be really good for them because they can try out new different things, give them little projects to do, but they need to feel psychologically safe. So they need to feel that, yes, they can try new stuff out and maybe fail at a few things or maybe not reach what was expected of them. But that doesn't matter because it's all in the kind of wider space of growth and development. So you've got those kind of organizations that are very much focus on the individual. And I think that probably works better with smaller organizations or specific industries where it's more around high technology, creativity, those kind of skills. Larger organizations struggle a bit more because of the resource implications. They can't just allow everybody to kind of run around and do lots of individual stuff. So they might control it a bit more. They basically say that everybody has the potential to be talented or show their talent in the organization. But they've got to put in the effort to do that. So they give them all loads of different resources and tools and different courses to go on and that kind of thing. And it's up to that individual to go, okay, I want to do this, this and this. I'm going to engage as much time as I want to. Some people will be like, okay, I'm quite happy in the position I am. I might want to do a little bit here and there, but I'm not that bothered. Other people will be like, yeah, I'm really engaged with that learning journey and want to do that. 
their approach was like, well, we're giving you the toolkit here. You've got to show willing and motivation and engagement in those processes. And then through that, then you will be showing your talents to us and therefore we'll give you kind of promotional opportunities and that kind of thing. This is a really interesting question right now in terms of what is the boundary of giving people the right toolkit to take charge of their careers and be autonomous versus making that toolkit more helpful so that it's an easier process. I think if you take the analogy of using a physical map versus using Google Maps, you know, physical maps are toolkit for figuring out where you want to go, but it's a lot of work. You have to figure out where you are. You have to figure out where your destination is. And with Google Maps and SatNav, we've ended up with that toolkit of navigating being a lot easier. It's still up to you where you go and what you do, but you can figure out this is my location and this is the paths I could take. And I think we're starting to see something similar in terms of the interaction between technology and the kind of toolkits that employees might have. You ultimately want to empower people to make these decisions, but you can make it easier for people to see what are my options, where am I at, and um, and have that be a more dynamic process, which I think is a really exciting opportunity for what the future could hold, um, but uh, touches very closely on what you're referring to as the more humanistic or inclusive talent management approaches that we're uh, looking at, you know, to be much more individualized in this, we can take some leaves out of the book of what the consumer experiences have been where, you know, we now live in a world where that's super individualized, you know, no two Netflix feeds are the same. How can we think a little bit more like that when it comes to helping guide people with careers? It's a really interesting question. So with that, if we wear that future hat and we fast forward five years from now, what do you think has changed five years from now? Like, what do, what, what do you hope to see in that world? In five years' time, I would like to see that there's much more of a focus on a connection between that kind of ethic, ethical and moral imperative around this and, and that individualized approach and thinking about the, the kind of strategic reason, but not in a kind of strategic in the sense of just purely KPIs, but looking at it in terms of societal impact, regional development, for example. So how is this all connected to other things that you're doing in the organization like CSR? Maybe you're designing kind of more longer term pipelines through apprenticeships and, you know, activities with schools and so on. So it's kind of that bigger picture thinking, I think, around connecting those dots and thinking about it, not just as a business case, but looking at it from a a societal impact thing. Ultimately, we're seeing the pandemic, we've had Brexit, we've got the Ukraine crisis, we've got, you know, energy and climate change, all of those things. Businesses really need to be doing something, a fundamental shift in the way that they're thinking about all sorts of things. And I think this is part of that. Well, Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating discussion and really excited to see more of your your research on these uh, super important and pertinent topics. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. The Talent Blueprint is brought to you by Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform makes it possible for enterprises to drive more human talent experiences and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce with industry-leading AI. Beamery optimizes every step of the talent lifecycle, from sourcing and identifying talent with the right skills and potential, to building and marketing your employment brand, creating an internal talent marketplace, and mobilizing your employees through getting the reporting and talent insights that you need to make better decisions about your workforce. Are you ready to unlock your talent? Learn more at beamery.com.